Welcome to another episode of the Selbius Godcast, where we are going to dive headfirst into that debate that you know you want another hour of. It's LeBron versus MJ on the Selbius Godcast. Just kidding, just kidding. No, we're going to spend the next hour actually MJ talking. has exited the chat. <laughs> no, we're going to spend the next hour talking Biden versus Trump. No, no, no. Just I'm, I'm back in the chat. Let's go. <laughs> We're going to talk for the next hour about which Halloween candy is the best. TJ, you have the floor. I do not mind candy corn. That's a hot take for you. It's fine if you don't like it because I'll eat it. Why is this such a bad thing? If you don't like it and I do, it seems like we have a really good relationship here. (laughs) Welcome to America. Hey, I can have a differing opinion, can't I? And I'm not going to be silenced on Twitter because of it. I'll tell you that. He's TJ Zuppi. I'm Zach Meisel. And it's mid-October. The Indian season has been over for two weeks. And the offseason won't really get going for another couple weeks. So what is there to talk about? Well, there's still stuff. Right? I think. <laughs> you sound so reassuring. As if we hadn't just considered a few things to discuss. I think there are a few, a handful that we could touch upon that, that, that maybe fans would be ready to, to talk about because I feel like we, we gave everybody enough time. We stepped away. I told you, let's give everybody a little bit of breathing room and time to digest everything that took place because this was all just so weird to begin with. I don't know how people digest a season like this and then a two-game exit in a best-of-three series. It's, it was all so weird, so... I just felt like some time away would be good for everybody, but now we're back, and I feel like we have some hardcore, really important things to discuss. Candy corn aside. Yeah, this is going to be a fascinating offseason for a lot of reasons, and and a lot of them negative. Uh, Teams don't know what they're doing right now, and there's so much uncertainty about what 2021 will look like that it's kind of clouding everything in 2020. And I think I think teams are looking at other teams saying like, uh, you go first, then we'll figure this out. Um, and, and it's just leaves so much unknown. Um, we know the Indians probably would prefer to move Francisco Lindor this winter, but we just don't know how robust that trade market is going to be. Teams don't know what their finances have to look like. And they don't know what holes they're going to have. They don't know whether prospects are ready to take over because they didn't have a minor league season. All this confusion creates what should be a pretty strange offseason in terms of I think there's going to be a flooded free agent market that's going to move really slowly. But if you love players getting released or non-tendered, boy, do I have an offseason for you. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that. Um, MLB Trade Rumors had just put out their list of of arbitration projections and because they are so much smarter than any of us they actually released three different projections based on what it looked like in this season and then what if you extrapolated that over 162 games would that change the projection and they have three different ones and i'm looking at like how how just tell me here here's what the projection is you don't have to explain how you got there because i just trust you you're way too smart for me to be able to figure these things out. But I'm looking at the list for the Indians, and the Indians have seven of them, arbitration-eligible guys, and I can't believe we're starting a podcast talking about arbitration-eligibles, but here you go. Austin Hedges, Adam Simber, Delano DeShields, Francisco Lindor, Phil Maton, Tyler Naquin, and Nick Whitgren. And it's the first time I feel like in a long time, maybe ever, I look at the list and I just think, can I just run this like my hardball dynasty team where I just non-tender everybody and let's start fresh (laughs) With a bunch of guys that make next to nothing. When you already have a list of guys that are making next to nothing outside of Francisco Lindor, who projects to make maybe 17 and a half to all the way up to 21 and a half million through arbitration next year. Uh, it's a it's a, an interesting offseason to be sure to be had coming up because we have never been in a situation like this coming off of a season like this. I don't know how teams are going to react financially. We, all of the, the typical parameters we think teams operate within can almost throw that out the window. We don't know where anyone is coming from and what the philosophy will, will be this offseason. So I wouldn't be surprised if everyone not named Francisco Lindor gets non-tendered this winter. Or they oh, could all get tendered. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
really, I, I have no basis of knowing what the Indians will do. It's so weird. I, usually you could say I have some sort of estimated guess on what they might do, and maybe you're occasionally surprised, but for the most part, you know. <clears throat> this one, I look at the list, and I'm like, I don't know. I could make a strong case either way for a lot of these guys to not be on the team anymore and to you turn things over. You would funky Phil Maton 700 grand? Oh, I would do that. I would. You wouldn't pay nice guy Nick Wickren like one and a half million? I would, but I am not the Indians, and I don't know what their financial situation looks like and if they're going to pay Francisco Lindor $20.5 million in arbitration. I don't know what they're capable of outside of that. So. Well, they're probably going to agree to. I don't know if they're going to be the team that picks up the tab, um, which reminds me of uh, Manny Ramirez's story I just heard from a former teammate about this. <laughs> it's just an ingenious way of... Um, fleeing when the bill comes. Uh, we'll get to that in a Can't couple weeks. Can't wait for the but... Cleveland Rocked again. The story of the whatever. I don't know what you're working on now. Uh, I look, at Delano DeShields, I didn't really understand his purpose on the roster in 2020. It makes even less sense in 2021 if he's going to be making, I don't know, $2.1 million. Um, Tyler Naquin, honestly, like, is there anything he does that Daniel Johnson can't do for one-fifth of the price? Uh, and and honestly, like two million dollars shouldn't scare a team off. Naquin's been a solid hitter more often than not in his career, but I just you don't need him. I mean, as long as they don't write about him, he's other- fine. Yeah. And that's um, a, that's amazing how quickly that turned because about what halfway through this year he was one of their most prolific hitters. If they had one, holy of those. low bar, Batman. But, but I'm, yes, but I'm saying that's how quickly this one. I and I wrote about him whatever it was early. September, I think, and somebody had in the comments said, you know, this is a, a good development for him that he's he's having such a good season so far because he was on that non-tender bubble. And I'm thinking, yeah, how, how quickly that can come. And he probably saved himself. And yet now we sit here today and he slumps so badly at the end of the year. Are, are you saying that you can't find somebody that could contribute against right-handed pitching the way that he has? I, I think the I think there's still more in there, and we've occasionally seen it, but would you rather take that couple of million dollars and allocate it elsewhere, knowing what the financial structure typically looks like for this team? I would certainly lean that way, and I'm a, as, as much as you can be, I'm a, a Naquin fan, as a, considering what he should be able to do, but you know that's kind of the boat I'm in as far as this list and who realistically should and will be on the team next year. So, so... There's a lot, a lot of this is intertangled, um, if I can make up a word, because... Intertangled, nice. <laughs> that was one of my favorite Kiss songs. <laughs> a lot depends on, like, whatever your return is for Lindor. I mean, maybe they trade Lindor and they get an everyday outfielder in return. Well, then you definitely don't need Naquin. Then it maybe influences what you wanted, where you want to play Framil Reyes what Daniel Johnson's doing, what Jordan Luplo's doing. I still think Oscar Mercado is going to be their opening day center fielder, but where does that leave a guy like Bradley Zimmer? Um, there, there's just, look, there, there's not, there's probably not space on this team for DeShields and Naquin. That's not saying they are just flush with great options, but those two guys, like, I think you know what you have at this point. Um, but that also kind of, thing is, well, finish your thought. Well, the other thing is they're going to need a new infield. I mean, I, Carlos Santana, the only way he's coming back is on a nice, friendly hometown, nobody else really needs you type deal. Um, otherwise, you're going to have Naylor, Bobby Bradley, Jake Bowers competing for first base. That's the more likely scenario. But again, like Naylor and Bowers could also be outfield options. Even less reason for Nake went into shield. So you're going to need a second baseman. You're going to need a shortstop. I mean, if you can, like, they're going to clear a ton of salary. That payroll's going to be tiny. If you can also get rid of guys like DeShields and Naquin and maybe a couple others and save a few million bucks that way, maybe you can throw another $6 million at Cesar Hernandez, something like that, so that at least you have a veteran stopgap somewhere um, because they don't know if guys, like, I don't think Tyler Freeman or Owen Miller or Gabriel Arias are going to be ready on opening day because they didn't have a minor league season. And Nolan Jones probably would have been the starting something um, 
early this year, but I'm going to guess that he's going to start at AAA because they want to see him at least play in some actual games first. So, and manipulate his service time. So, like, there's just <laughs> ding, so much... Ding, ding. <laughs> there's just so much unknown, and so much of this is tied together. Um, but I look at this list of seven arbitration-eligible guys. I, I, there's no reason not to pick up Maton and Wickren, and then, obviously, Lindor. But, like, Hedges, I, that has never made sense to me. That's a little weird. We yeah, don't you have to discussion. pick between... Roberto Perez and Austin Hedges, they both well, do the exactly gonna, the same thing. They are the same run, guy. If you're going to run a $55, $60 million payroll, or I mean, $70 million payroll, whatever it ends up being, are you really going to spend $9 million of that on your two offensively limited catchers? I wouldn't think so. And if you're looking to shave a little bit of money off of your payroll, couldn't you keep Hedges and... Dump Perez, but you would you really want to do that considering how much they talk about the catching position being so important and a guy in Perez that is so familiar with the pitching staff and they like yeah, his game plan Yeah, but is he as ability? familiar with is he as familiar with this pitching staff as he was with the pitching staffs of the last few years? There's a lot of new faces. Well, do do you and this is completely unquantifiable. Uh, I can't go to Fangraphs for this, but you know, does Perez pick things up with? with pitchers more quickly or is he just more apt to understand a game plan than Hedges is or what they're trying to execute? I don't know that. That's stuff that they would have to answer behind the scenes. But if you value them similarly, you could go with the guy that costs a little bit less money. And, you know, this, the other thing to consider too with, with non-tender guys, because the offseason being what it is and so many players will likely be, be in a similar boat on, on many teams – I think the odds of being able to non-tender a guy and bring him back for far less salary or maybe not even a guaranteed roster spot are so much better than, than mm-hmm. even a typical offseason. Like Naquin, if, if, let's say they non-tender Naquin, is he going to go get a guaranteed job somewhere? Or is he going to be left to look at spring training invites? He could get like a one-year... $1 million, $1.5 million I, I would from, not from a rebuilding team. I would not disagree with you in a normal setting. But I don't know. This this yeah. offseason feels so weird and so different that maybe he does have to pick between non-roster invites. And could the Indians say, hey, you come back, but it's going to be on far less salary or you're going to have to earn your spot back on the team. Well, in either way, I mean, you thought past free agency sessions have gone slowly. This year, I mean, there's just it's going to be there's so much supply and there's going to be so little demand that you're right. I mean, it's it's if Naquin has that decision to make, he's going to be making that decision in March, not November. The other thing, I mean, one other wrinkle to this is, you know who could lend a really valuable opinion about the whole Perez-Hedges thing? Uh, let me see. Uh, I think the Indians might have had a former catcher on their staff. Oh, what's his name? Swami Swimmy Samsonite. I was way off. Sandy Alomar. Yeah, the guy who was your first base coach turned manager turned... Who knows what he'll be next year because the Indians still don't know if Brad Mills is coming back or what's up with Ty Van Berkleo or, oh, I don't know, maybe Alomar gets an interview with one of these four or five vacancies. I mean, it's there's there's chaos with the coaching staff, too. There's so much to sort out. This, is, this has got to be after a year where, you know, normally like a front office can relax a little bit in April and May and even June because you've done all the work in the offseason and getting ready for opening day and you know you're, you're not really going to make trades into the middle of the year well this year you didn't really have that because it was just a daily struggle with is there going to be a season how do we keep these guys safe how do we keep them on a, a forward developmental path <laughs> like these guys haven't had a, a chance to exhale in in ever and this offseason is going to be nuts there's so much for the indians to sort out um and it's all intertangled. Well, you, that's, that's the uh, the headline here for the podcast. Everything's intertangled. Well, you, what did you, you texted me like a week ago trying to figure out who are the guys on the position player side. The pitching is easier to figure out. Mm-hmm. But the position player side, who is absolutely 100% has their job nailed down, will be in the lineup on opening day. Can you, can you pick those apart? Domingo Santana. <laughs> and you... you 
quickly say, well, Jose Ramirez. Yes, absolutely. Pencil him in. Whether it's third base or second base, I lean more towards them not moving him off of third base now at this point mm-hmm. of his career. His, his body has settled more into being a third baseman, if you know what I mean. But he's picked up some bulk. Haven't all of ours. Of course. And even through the pandemic, even more so. Um, so, but you can say... Jose Ramirez is absolutely part of the roster, part of the lineup, wherever he might be playing. And then, I, who else can you say 100% will be back? That's it, right? That's, that's, that's completely it. You would say Francisco Lindor, but I think you and I both agree that there's a strong possibility that they, they move him this offseason. And, you know, we can have many conversations, I anticipate that we will, about whether or not they should keep him and the ability to keep a star on a team no matter what the market size and the fact that these owners are making money still in TV deals and all the things that we've already discussed. But we also know reality. We try to live as much in Realityville as possible. If the Indians have no chance of signing Lindor, isn't the more responsible thing to trade him as opposed to getting virtually nothing outside of perhaps a decent draft pick, which is very volatile to begin with? So it may be more irresponsible not to move him. The the fact is you have so many players on the position player side that you cannot say with 100% certainty, even Roberto Perez, that we'll be absolutely back. And then it, it got me thinking, how much do we talk about small sample sizes being dangerous, both on the positive and the negative? You never want to make a decision based on a small sample size. And we're not even trying to do that based off of 60 games, but thank God... They, get, they got two great games from Josh Naylor in the playoffs because at least you go into the offseason thinking, eh, maybe he's not so bad. Maybe he deserves a starting spot. Maybe they saw something in there and the minor league numbers are worth believing in. Because without that, imagine going into the offseason, it's two playoff games, two, two nothing games. But yet you still kind of hold on to that because what else do you have to grasp onto offensively? So I would say... After Jose Ramirez, there's a huge gap. And then the second most likely player to be part of the opening day lineup would be Roberto Perez. And then after that, it's probably Josh Naylor. And what's crazy is I think fourth would be Oscar Mercado. Just because I don't know who else would would, would play center field. They still believe in him. Um, goes back to the sample size point you just made. But, uh, like... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, someone asked me in, in a mailbag this week, who's the most likely player to start on opening day who did not start a game in 2020? And I don't know what you think. I, I listed four options, and they were Nolan Jones, Bobby Bradley, Jake Bowers, and Owen Miller, who no one even knows who he is. Um, I ruled out Miller and Jones just because I think they would want to get a, a look at Miller since they've never really seen him. I think, I still think they would prefer Jones start at AAA. And then you're left with Bradley and Bowers. And I gave the nod to Bowers just because he could play multiple positions. What was but the like, question again? The most likely player to start opening day 2021 who didn't start a game in 2020. Okay. But the, the, my leading answer was someone who's not in the organization right now. You know, odds are there's going to be at least one player in that starting lineup on opening day who who they trade for. And that could be a Lindor trade. They have starting pitching surplus still that it wouldn't shock me if they flipped a starting pitcher for a position player. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the more likely route, but and that will at least offer some clarity because right now we're just looking at all these pieces parts that don't fit and no one knows anything about and it looks kind of ugly. Well, thankfully, at least hopefully, they'll have 162 games to pick it apart because this year it felt like a constant race against the clock to try to figure things out. And I, I, this goes back to other things that you can't quantify. You know, looking at Oscar Mercado's season, how much did he just feel added pressure as things don't go well that it just snowballs out of control because you don't have... You know, if you struggle a month into a normal season, you still have so much time to get yourself righted. Uh, See, you, I don't, you I, can, I don't like that excuse. Though. No, 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 no. I'm not saying it's that's the reason why he. Right. I'm, I'm simply posing the question: How much can that weigh on somebody? It, it, it's, it's a lot for us, and I think a lot for decision makers to have to try to make 
big decisions based on extremely small sample sizes, but putting myself, in fairness, in shoes of the player that's going through these sorts of things, it's it was so very not much like a, a, a typical year that I could see that weighing on somebody far more than it ever would in a regular year. And that's not to say that 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 you just throw away everything that happened last year for Oscar Mercado, but it is saying that I think it's part of the equation somewhere. I, I don't know. I don't even know that it's the biggest part of the equation. I don't know where it factors in, but I think it's in there somewhere. When you have a young player that. You know, in the past, we've seen confidence issues weigh with him. He's even admitted that it has at points throughout his rookie year that he had some some waning confidence and would have to have some good stretches to get back on a, in a good good place offensively, both mentally and physically, I think, too. I don't rule out that that is part of the difficulty of weighing last year's sample size because even players that got themselves into a funk, it was like, that clock is ticking, that, that sand in the hourglass keeps falling, and if you don't get yourself squared away in the next three at-bats, then you're screwed. And I get that, but I, I guess when you're not a proven player, that should always be the case. Because it's like if Mercado struggles early next season, like he's not guaranteed the job through September. He doesn't have 162 games to get it turned around. Like There should be someone breathing down his neck. So I... I don't know. I've never. This season was weird. I don't want to put too much stock into anything at all, except for Jose Ramirez's uh, lost helmet pace, which was just exceptional. Um, but I, like, I think everybody, everybody should feel that sort of pressure all the time, unless you're some proven veteran and you know, no matter what, you're going to be in there. Um, no, I, I agree. Like that I think proven that's, veterans that's go thing. through that, though. I, I think yeah. I think it can I think it can weigh on everybody. I'm just saying that I think it is something to at least keep in the back of your mind when looking at looking at a season like we just saw. Is is Oscar Mercado one of the worst hitters in baseball? I don't think so. Now, is he good enough to be worthy of a starting spot? You know, I thought that after his rookie year. I'm not so sure of that now, and he'll probably get a chance to prove that next year. But I. When I look Are you at saying the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I know. God bless it. Can't believe I went down that path. I chose I need the middle a hotter path. Take from you, please. <laughs> when you reach a fork in the road, take it. Yeah, I, I just there's going to be a lot of young players on this team, and I think everybody needs to kind of brace for some growing pains. I mean, think about all the options we just laid out. Like even Josh Naylor, who. We don't have proof quite yet that he can be a productive everyday big leaguer. I don't think two games against the Yankees has proven that. So there's going to be there that lineup is going to be filled with guys who are going to need time, who are going to feel that pressure, who aren't going to be granted 162 games to figure it out. Whether it's Nolan Jones or Jake Bowers or Bobby Bradley or Daniel Johnson, like there's going to be or whoever the Indians acquire in trades, like there are going to be a lot of position players. Who go through growing pains i think you could even say the same thing about a lot of people on the pitching staff that's why i really think 2021 is kind of a i think they can still be good um but it's it's going to be a year that requires patience it's going to be a year that you have young guys figuring it out maybe young guys going through struggles for the first time like tristan mckenzie um so it's it's going to be such a strange season on one hand i'm almost Excited about it just because it's we haven't really gotten to see a lot of young players at the same time on this roster in years and years, um, and it's, and especially because they still like you still have Shane Bieber, you still have Jose Ramirez. Like it still should be a team that I would yeah. think wins as at least as much as it loses. But there are going to be a lot of just <laughs> stretches with with guys trying to figure out what they're doing. Yeah, there. it's amazing a team that has as many. As many things as you can pick apart and nitpick on with, with the Indians, and yet we still go back to the old cliche narratives of, yeah, but this team doesn't have any star power. Well, they might have the Cy Young and MVP on their team going into next year. We'll see how the voting, I mean, Shane Bieber is almost assuredly the Cy Young. We'll see how the voting goes and how badly you screwed up your MVP vote when the Jose Ramirez yeah. vote comes out. I, uh, I'd tell you how much I screwed it up, but I forgot to write down <laughs> Who I voted, where? Oh no! And so I'm finding it difficult to write a piece about why I voted the way I voted when <laughs> I don't remember how I voted. Oh, well, hopefully you didn't send them through the mail. Hey, oh, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs>
as um, oh, one quick thought before we, we wrap up and move on. Can we at least acknowledge that if Josh Naylor did no- nothing else, he at least won himself a little bit into the hearts of fans with his hair flopping everywhere and <laughs> screaming on the bench the way that he did. And yeah. his Enrique Wilson-esque swim coming around third base. You know, we didn't get to learn much about Naylor because it, it all happened so quickly and he played on the team for a month. And you don't get to be around the players like you normally would, so you don't get to know them as quickly as you typically would. But I think we saw a lot of a little bit of that fun personality that, that he brings to the table. I don't know if that means he can hit in the major leagues, but I think he'll be a fun part of the team for however long this lasts. Yeah, if I had a nickel for every time someone asked me to start a Josh Naylor helmet counter, I'd be able to fund the Indians' uh, arbitration pursuits this winter. But, um, I, yeah, he's... Look, people were ready to bail on him after, like, 25 at-bats, I think, after the trade. Like, um, look, is he the second coming? Is he uh, – I, I don't even know if he's an, an everyday big leaguer. But he he was a pretty good minor league hitter. And also – and this goes back to the confusing results over process, Sandy Alomar pinch hitting for Naylor with Jordan Luplo to get the righty to face Luplo, who was batting, like, 120 against righties this year move. Naylor was just as good, if not better, against lefties um, in his career as righties. So if you can actually find a corner outfielder who doesn't need a platoon partner um, and wake up the ghosts of David DeLucci and Jason Michaels, uh, that would be quite a revelation for this this roster. So we'll, we'll see if uh, that's in the cards. But he was definitely exciting down the stretch and you know at least showed glimpses of why the Indians wanted him. I'm glad you brought up that that pinch hit because I thought it revealed a little bit into the Indians' decision making on on how they arrive at certain things. Now I there's a lot of, of stuff that not even even just Sandy Alomar has done, but Terry Francona has done decisions that just leave you scratching your head, thinking, "What in the hell is the thought process here?" And we talked about it before when they pinch hit for Naylor in the playoffs. Naylor is your your best hitter in the postseason for the two-game sample size. But still, swinging a red-hot bat, and they took him out in favor of Luplo, and we thought, what are you doing? That gets uh, the lefty out of the game, and then they're going to go to a right-hander. But in the the way Sandy explained it, it was something that kind of comes back to how I evaluate a manager, and it's it's more so not what I have done, what he would have done, because there's plenty that I would not, and there's plenty that they do, and there's plenty of times that I would have been wrong doing what I wanted to do. So I acknowledge that. But the thing that I always evaluate a manager, or I think what is the smart way to evaluate a manager, is to look at the decisions and think, would a rational person do what they're doing? Can I at least understand the thought process? Can Wait, I see... Do you remember what Dwight Schrute said? <laughs> I think to myself, would an idiot do this? And then I definitely do not do that. Am I somewhere close? I can't remember. Yeah, that, that's the joke. <laughs> but if you can follow, good e- life, even, life if, even if I don't agree with where the thought process takes you, if I can at least follow the breadcrumbs enough that I can see this wasn't just made because of some gut decision or reading some managerial book. If I can see a thought process laid out, then I can say, okay, well, I can at least understand how you arrived there. It might not be my destination, but at least understand how you arrived there. And the way that Sandy explained that in the playoffs is that he thought that the based on the data that they had, the smarter matchup for the rest of the game was to get the lefty, Britain, I think was in the game, to get him out of the game and go back to a right-hander. And if that meant having to sacrifice Naylor for Luplo against the righty, that it made sense for them. And it kind of got me thinking about, I don't know if the Indians do this, and and certainly not a lot of teams want to tell you how they arrive at the decision-making, but you and I both know that there are some teams in the major leagues that do this. And I've even been in some visiting managers' uh, scrums that have revealed this that probably shouldn't have revealed it to reporters. But a lot of teams don't just look at OPS versus a pitcher and think, okay, well, this guy has had this amount of success against this guy, and so that means i got to put him in the game based on seven career at-bats. That would be stupid, and we've talked about that before. But there are teams that go a little bit deeper, and they, they say, how does a hitter like this do against pitchers that are similar to this pitcher? And how does a, a hitter, this hitter over here, do against this pitcher similar sorts of pitchers? And you look at you know, the, the repertoire that they throw, the velocity at which they throw, maybe the, 
the arm angle that they throw, and you can roll all of that into almost like a, a, a number. Think of it like one to five. One is the worst matchup, five being the best. And the way that you can make it easier for a manager is to just put that on a sheet in front of them, and now I can look and see, okay, if I have a matchup here, let's say it's Naylor against Britain, and maybe I'm looking at a three, but I'm seeing Luplo against this pitcher, and it's a four. This is a better matchup, not just because of the the hand that they throw with but because of the the way that they throw the pitches that they throw the velocity and the way that my hitter does against pitches that are very similar to that that's how you can use that data smartly now again i'm not saying that's what the indians do i just know teams do something similar to that and perhaps maybe that's you know sandy didn't quite explain it it was almost like he was tiptoeing around it but it was almost like that was the sort of rationale that he was basing his decision on and if that's the case if they were using some sort of data that we don't have or we aren't privy to, and he arrived at that decision, I gave him credit for going analytically. Or if it was all just with his gut, then hell, process, screw that, go with just the results. Every time a manager, and it's not, I'm not saying this is Tito or Sandy or anyone in Cleveland, but anytime a manager says that they liked that matchup because the hitter was two for five in their career against that pitcher, oh, an angel loses its wings. Um, I think Leave you're Mike speaking, Trout out of this. I think you're speaking to the importance of having a front office and a coaching staff that are collaborative and on the same page and that believe in the same criteria, the, the, the importance of the same criteria. Like, you know, if the, if the front office is equipping a manager with all those details that you just said, but then the manager is just going off of gut or going off of a three at bat sample size. Yeah. I, then, then you're going to have issues. Um, you know, I just anecdotally, like it sounds like that was a little bit of the issue with Rick Renneri in Chicago was that, you know, the guys could have been put in better positions to succeed with all the talent they had. I don't know. I'm not there. I don't cover that team every day, but I think that's I've, I've heard some rumors to, to that in the past coming from some people around the team. So I would not be surprised if that was the case. And I think just from the outside looking in, part of that is, is why Tampa Bay works. Um, I think it's why the Twins have a really good foundation that they like with Rocco Baldelli and, and the front office people they have there. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's different. And it's such a different, the manager, manager role is so different than it was even 10 years ago let alone, I mean, the White Sox are interviewing Tony La Russa, let alone 40 years ago. So I mean, we're seeing how these coaching staffs are expanding. Would you, would you be yeah. that surprised if this kind of comes back to something that Brian Kenny wrote in his book a few years ago? Would you be that surprised if in the future we see, instead of just one manager, more like a, a collaborative managing staff, you know, maybe two or three guys that come together to make one decision? And maybe it, it, one of those guys is still the overall head guy, but it, it's more that. than just one guy getting the credit. You know, it's, it's a team of people. And I think Tito, to his credit, has, has kind of created that sort of atmosphere. Well, um, I think that's how the Indians operated this Sure. Year. I mean, every decision, Sandy Almar, for the stuff that you can prepare for, he was seeking out the opinion of everybody on the coaching staff and in the front office. And they have guys who are basically liaisons between the two, um, like Eric Binder on the pitching side. He's, he works. He's in the front office, but he's a pitching guru, and travels with the team and meets with the pitching coaches every day. Like like, so Sandy would consult everybody. But during a game, you only have three and a half seconds to make a decision. You can't you know send out a monkey survey monkey and um, tabulate the results and then make your decision. Um, but I I do think they kind of operated that way. Um, that's why Mike Sarbaugh moved into the dugout. Any pitching pitching situation, Sandy was leaning on Carl Willis and those guys. So, yeah, I mean, I think I could see that you just you still need a figurehead. You need someone who always has the final say, who in the heat of the moment can make that quick decision. Um, so I don't know. It's an interesting thought. To wrap things up, the playoffs are nearing a conclusion. We almost have our World Series set. But I feel like we're deep enough into this to make some sort of assessment on, on what took place. What were your initial thoughts on the expanded playoff round? 
And have you been as invested in this postseason as much as past postseason? So for this year, and we talked about this at length before the season, um, I was in favor of the expanded playoffs. I thought adding an extra layer would legitimize it. And I think it has. I think we have I th- the Rays, Braves, and Dodgers are three really, really good teams. I'm surprised the Astros are here because I thought with all their pitching injuries, um, I didn't think they were that good of a team. I it's don't not, like... It's not exactly surprised. I mean, they have really good players yeah. that just underperformed or were hurt this year. So it's them being there. It's not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this, under 500. It's not like the Orioles marching all the way here. You know, they're a good team that just underperformed. Yeah, I just I don't think a best of three really does much for me. I, I don't think that proves anything. Um, it's, it's so random and this has nothing to do with the Indians and Yankees, but I just, best of like a best of five series is random enough, let alone a best of three. So I don't love that. I wish it would have been a best of five opening round as well. And I do think that the lack of off days in all these series is kind of, I mean, it's certainly influencing strategy and making things different than normal. I will be happy next year if. Uh, look, it's not going to be 10. I don't think it's going to be 16. If they settle on 12, I think that'd be a good number. But I, I would prefer the longer the series, the better, especially in baseball, because it's you can see so many fluky things happen for a game or two or three. And if you want to reward teams that stuck it out for six months and were really good, then you shouldn't just leave that up to a random coin flip no. for a day or three. Um, I'm, so, I'm glad. I'm glad that this has resulted, though, in three of the best four teams in baseball yeah. marching this far. And I didn't and think it would. Agreed. And even if it's Braves making it in the National League, I mean, the Dodgers were all-time great. They had, I think they had the best winning percentage in franchise history this year, whatever that's worth in a 60-game sample. But Brave, it's it's within the realm of things that could actually happen in a normal season that the Dodgers, being the best team in baseball, could still get beat in a seven-game series by the Braves, and it's not that unrealistic. It's not like, a, mm-hmm. oh, well, 2020 strikes again. No, I, that's realistic. Things like that happen sometimes in the postseason. It's the reason why the Dodgers haven't won a World Series to this point. They've been really good, but they just can't quite win it. That said, I've barely watched. I mean, I don't know about you. I just... Unbelievable. The so there's a couple of reasons. Number one, call yourself a baseball writer. Typically, at the end of a season, I need a break. I'm exhausted. I've watched so much baseball. I just need to tune my attention elsewhere for a little bit. Um, Based on your is, Instagram feed, I know where you're spending it every day. My God, in the sand. <laughs> if only it was the sand of a warm beach somewhere. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I look, I've spent every day of the last six months at a golf course, it seems, but, um, I, I can't quite get over the lack of fans. It, the thing that makes the postseason so great is every single pitch has so much intensity and means so much. And even if you are not, if you're in the kitchen getting a snack you still know that because you can hear the fans and their chants and their excitement. And it's just still a little weird, and I can't yeah. quite get into it. Yeah, I, I agree on that. I, I've noticed that more as the postseason has gone on, too. I mean, it was certainly evident just even in the, the games that the Indians played. I, I watched Game 1 on TV, and I was there in person with you in, in Game 2, and, and both just don't they don't carry the same sort of vibe. Even the... Like the the announcers as they're calling these these big plays, I went back and watched that that we talked about the the Luplo pinch hit for Naylor and he hits the ball that double and it's like man in a typical postseason game that park would be going nuts the announcers would be losing it and if memory serves correct it's like he he goes oh Luplo hits one to center field and it'll get over the center fielders and it's like okay it sounds like a regular season game. <laughs> But this is one of the biggest hits in the series in a situation that no one is expecting this to take place. And, and yet it just doesn't reflect that. The one thing that I have noticed outside of the fans, which is, is really killed some of my interest, I have watched pretty much every game, but I have not been as locked in on every game. And some of this is just because 
the Dodgers scored 30 runs in one inning, and the Braves came back and hung, uh, what was it, 12 spot on the Dodgers or whatever. I mean, it was, these games haven't been as competitive. Obviously, mm-hmm. Rays and, and Astros have been a lot more entertaining. Uh, but the other thing that, that I've noticed is I was really into that first round. I thought that was tremendous. Like, that was baseball porn. To be able to turn a, t- a TV on throughout the game, throughout the day, and there was just constantly yep. action, action. It felt and like March Madness. It did. It absolutely did. And they were able to put the scores in the corner. And the only thing that I was complaining about is that I didn't have enough TVs to switch between all this action taking place. And you had games coming down to the wire and big hits all happening simultaneously. And it was a lot of fun. And I loved that from a from an entertainment standpoint. Forget what it was doing to the sanctity of the game and teams that had good records throughout the year. From just pure baseball entertainment standpoint, I loved the opening round. Couldn't get enough of it. But as the mm-hmm. playoffs have gone on, I think this sort of, and this happens in March Madness for me too. I love the first weekend. It's tremendous. And then my interest wanes. And then you get down to the like the final four and, and the actual final in in. March Madness, and I almost don't really care. And maybe that's just because my bracket's in the toilet. But I, I have spent so much early energy watching some of these upsets and watching some of these entertaining finishes. But by the time you get to the end, I'm almost, I'm, I'm tired. You know, I'm ready for something else. So I think part of that is, is on the table, too, for baseball. I agree with you. You can't do this again. But I think expanding it a bit more and rewarding the teams with the top seeds is very important. Mm-hmm. You have to do that. There has to be some something about the regular season that means something, and winning the top record in your league so that you are in a bye to the next round, uh, I think I think accomplishes that. What makes baseball special is is the journey. That's what you know. I think people remember 2016 because they know it started with that 14 game winning streak, and that it, that kind of like opened everyone's eyes in Cleveland that hey, this team this team is a shot, and then you remember that journey through the postseason. Like, I remember in 2007, it was similar. It was like, it took a little while for you to believe that that team was, was legitimate. And then everybody remembers when they clinch in late September. And, you know, like, like it's just, it feels so rewarding if you're a fan because of all the investment you put in over the course of six months. Well, if 16 teams are going to make the playoffs and the first round is going to be a random coin flip, then what's the point? Why get invested like that? You know, you, you want to care about the regular season so that the postseason payoff can be really rewarding. You know, I think what kind of stinks is when you don't care so much about the regular season and you're just like, oh, get me to October and then I'll then I'll be invested. Well, that just kind of that kind of cheapens it. So yeah, that, that uh, becomes the NBA can, for me. Yeah, hopefully they can find a nice happy medium here. Um, and that I mean, we could have an entire podcast on all the ramifications expanded playoffs could have on how owners and front offices operate. I mean, there's a, there's, it's a slippery slope. So uh, I think 12 is the right number. I know Chris Antonetti agreed. He hopes it's not eight teams in each league moving forward. Um, but we'll see. Well, I'm, so, I'm sure he would be into expanded playoffs because that just feeds into the way they want to build their team. Just good enough to win 86 to 90 games every single year. And if they're expanding the playoffs, that helps them. That's what they're trying to go for. I'm ready for a random Cleveland Indian of the day. And no, I'm not talking about the postseason, which has featured a bunch of them. Yeah, you know, I was going to give you one that you have never heard of. <laughs> oh, well, let's just skip to the end where you reveal who it is. <laughs> then I decided what's the fun in that. Um, so let's go with... I almost want to do one that you would just get. We'll pick one before everybody tunes out and hits up their favorite other podcast. Who is this? <laughs> That's a good start. Okay. Uh, this pitcher pitched for the Indians in 1999. Okay. God. He made one appearance. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. He went a third of an inning, three runs, two hits, one walk. It was intentional. So his wait, Indians ERA wait, is... He made... He had, he had an intentional walk in this brief appearance? So his career ERA with the Indians is 81. <laughs> but his career ERA overall is 391. Oh, my God. He pitched for six years in the majors, the Mets, the Indians, Oakland, and Toronto. So he actually pitched other places. 
pitched from 98 to 2003. I'm just going to give you all the information because you're not going to get this. Um, the Indians claimed him off waivers in June of 99 from the Mets, who then claimed him off waivers uh, two months later. Boy, if you couldn't stick with the 99 Indians pitching staff, yeah. prayers are with you. He is 50 years old. Right from now? Fullerton, California. Okay. Did his, did his career last more prior to the Indians or after Indians or... Indians same? in 99, started in, with the Mets in 98, and his last Major League season was 03. And was, did he have... You will not get this. Did he have any good years? Uh, yeah. 2000 with Oakland. 72 appearances, a 263 ERA. 2001 with Oakland, 70 appearances, a 301 ERA. Wow, good for him. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea, man. One, one appearance? No, I, I, I don't know. He attended both Eastern Florida State College and Palm Beach Atlantic University before going to Florida State. Seminoles. Uh, his middle name is Eugene. No, it's not. <laughs> his last name will ring a bell because he shares it with a very famous HBD player. A famous HBD player, huh? I can picture about four or five other baseball writers in their cars right now just screaming this last name at their radio. Uh, well, why don't you pull back the curtain and let me know who this is because I have no guess. Jeff Tam. Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. Jeff Tam. I have... He wore number 46 with the Indians in 1999. Yeah, I have uh, very little memory of him actually being good. It, it's up there, but it's uh, not a lot of it. <laughs> he had two good years with uh, Oakland. Yeah, how about that? Pretty Surprised they didn't write a whole book about him. He uh, made 16 appearances for the Indians AAA affiliate in 99 at a 208 ERA. And they thought so much of him that they let him make one appearance. A third of an inning. That's all the sample size we need. Let's go find that game. Really. It was a 10-9... Oh my god, he blew the... <laughs> it was a 10-9 loss to Kansas City on July 4th, 1999. <laughs> and the Indians entered the ninth down 6-5. Tam came in, gave up all those runs... And then the Indians scored four in the bottom of the ninth to cut it to 10-9. to nine, But David Justice grounded out to end it. Ugh, imagine having him as your favorite player. As he... Their lineup that day, Lofton, Vizquel, Alomar, Ramirez, Justice, Tomey, Saxon, Wilson, Borders. Pretty, pretty good. Top four guys in the order, all hitting 300. Justice was hitting 298. OPSs, everybody, 950. That was Vizquel's, like truly great offensive yeah. year, was it not? I know how badly you wanted to interject there and yell about him hitting second. No, he was, was good that year. He was merited. Maybe not the best hitter on the team, but probably didn't kill him too much with him hitting second. Pretty crazy. Dave, or Jim told me 950 OPS batting sixth. And, like, you can't even argue it. <laughs> God, what's wrong with Tommy? <laughs> I, can see, I can see Hoinsey writing it now. <laughs> what's wrong with Tommy in the Hoinsey mailbag? All right, uh, so I have, uh, it's not even a good story, but it was just a funny observation from this week uh, to, to send us away. I was uh, loading up the kids in the car the other day, and we're driving somewhere, and I see Ethan reading out of a notebook, and I'm thinking, where did that come from? And I realized he, he grabbed it out. I had it in the, the back pocket of the passenger seat, and he had reached in there, grabbed it, and he was reading it. I'm, I said, what are you doing, buddy? He said, I'm, I'm reading instructions. <laughs> instructions, okay, man. Uh, more power to you if you can somehow read all of that. I don't know what that is, but uh, congrats. And so we get to where we're going, and I, I actually look at what he's reading. He's reading an old notebook of mine that's just as full of Indians notes from whatever managerial session this was. I, I don't know what year this is, but I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> what, is, what is he reading? And he's reading about, like, Lonnie Chisenhall's rehab updates. <laughs> Like, oh, that could be any year. <laughs> and what what pitch count somebody might be on? And he's so every time we get in the car, he pulls this notebook out and he opens it up and he just starts looking at it like he's reading through 
like it's Indiana Jones fi figuring out where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant might be. <laughs> He's just reading this thing like front to back and it's just all full of notes. Now, thank God it's my notes and not yours. So at least he might have a prayer of being able to read it without a magnifying glass. But it, it was just funny to me that, and, and we all have this, you know, every, anybody that's covered a, t a team for any amount of time could probably find like a nightstand full of just notes of just random shit that no one gives a crap about now. But at the time you're sitting there scribbling it down like it's the most important thing. Got to hurry up and tweet this stuff out. Oh, and I but just... you have to save that stuff because there's always that one day where you vaguely remember some detail from like four years ago. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's okay. I saved those notes for that day. And then you think you can find it. You never can. No, but of course It's not. always comforting in your mind to know that it's possible. <laughs> yeah, no way. And it, if you look at, I mean, everybody takes notes differently. I've been around some people that don't even use recorders in a post-game session, they just scribble down a sentence and they somehow get that into their story and it's even remotely accurate. I don't know how that works, but No again, names, please. More power to you if you can get that done. Uh, to me, it's more so about mental cues. So I only write down like a word or a couple of words. This just helps me remember what was what we talked about today. Or if we get upstairs and there's something I do want to go back and, and listen to or tweet out, I have a mental cue there of stuff that I found important. So if you just look through it, someone randomly would just go, it's just a bunch of names of players. How would you even know what the hell happened this day? <laughs> but, but, you know, if you need to know what happened on Lonnie Chisinau's rehab assignment, I got plenty of notes on it for you. Well, that's, that's good. So we have Ethanpedia now. Yeah. Whenever you have a question about the 2014 league. <laughs> You can subscribe to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, Spotify. You can find us over at Anchor. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter at TJZoopy, at Zach Meisel, at Selbius Godcast. Until next time, we are out of here. And we'll be back with plenty more Lonnie Chisinau injury updates for you on the Selbius Godcast. Reese's Late. and Almond Joy. <laughs> Best Halloween candies. Peace. <laughs>